Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, Head of the Classics and Ancient History Program at La Trobe University. This is episode CCXVI, and because it's a spooky time of year, we bring you this special episode with a Roman haunting in three parts. Hello, Rhiannon. Hey, Matt. Uh, let's get cracking with our Halloween special, shall we? Yeah, it's a scary time of year. That's right. And uh, today we have an appropriately scary letter from Pliny the Younger, the uh, noted complainer to Trajan. Yeah, poor Pliny. <laughs> he didn't get much back, did he? No, no, he didn't. So just kind of broadly, what can we expect from this letter? In this letter, Pliny writes to a friend, as he often does, and he writes to him about three supernatural spooky stories. So he's done a Halloween anthology for us. Yeah, he kind of has done our job for us. And indeed, it explains why much of what we're doing is reading out the letter and extemporizing on it. Yes, okay. Uh, the laziest method of podcasting ever. So oh, I, I did some research. Okay. <laughs> I Googled some stuff. Yeah, it certainly was not Google. <laughs> there was Control V, Control C involved. <laughs> All right. Letters of Pliny the Younger, Book 7, Letter 27. To Licinius Sura. Footnote, who is Licinius Sura? He's known as a friend of the emperor, Trajan, and he's a senator, so well-respected. He had been consul three times, and he gets two letters from Pliny, so two mentions. Okay. Our leisure gives me the chance to learn... Why did I go British? I think it's just an instinct with the Romans because of Laurence Olivier and other films. All right. I think I might need to wear that. Our leisure gives me the chance to learn and you to teach me, so I should very much like to know whether you think that ghosts exist. Did Romans think that ghosts exist? (laughs) They use them in lots of their literature. They, I guess, like now, some people thought they did and some people were less sure. Mm. And that comes out in this letter because as he goes on in this sentence, I don't think I can do the whole letter with you doing that voice, though. And have a form of their own and some sort of supernatural power or whether they lack substance in reality and take shape only from our own fears. Yes. So this is a philosophical letter, isn't it? Is. It? it certainly is. It's about whether this is all manufactured in the mind or the idea that there is some, as he says, some substance to this. Do mm. ghosts exist or is this a psychological phenomenon? And this comes into philosophy, as you say, because the idea that they exist only in our minds is there in Epicureanism. Yeah. And that might bear some relevance given that coming up is someone who might relate to Stoicism. So we might have a bit of conflict between those two philosophies going on here. It's not unlikely that Pliny and Licinius Sura engage in philosophical discussions when they meet up or via letters. Or when he's got some free time, as in what this is, as in what he presents it. All right. So Pliny the Younger presents a haunting in three parts. I won't do the voice for the entire thing. I personally am encouraged to believe in their existence, largely from what I have heard from the experience of Curtius Rufus. Right, so here's the first story that we've got here. Curtius Rufus being Rhiannon. Who is he? According to Tacitus, Annals Book 11, Chapter 21, he was the son of a gladiator, which would make him rather a lowly person. Yeah, I had question marks over his ranking in society and why he would be so prominent. But anyway... Tacitus himself says 
whom some have described as the son of a gladiator. Mm. So it's just, you know, it could be hearsay. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, could very much be. He tells us pretty much the same story as we're going to hear in Pliny. So that kind of backs this up that it's common currency, I guess, this story's out there. Yeah. So this man, Curtius Rufus, while he was still obscure and unknown, he was attached to the suite of the new governor of Africa. So he's one of his lackeys. One of his entourage. Entourage. One afternoon, he was walking up and down in the colonnade of his house when there appeared to him the figure of a woman of superhuman size and beauty to allay his fears because clearly she wasn't there just to rob the joint and this is just a story that she came up with. Uh, She told him that she was the spirit of Africa, come to foretell his future. He would return to Rome and hold office and then return with supreme authority to the same province where he would die. So this is a, a dark, terribly mysterious portent that he's got from the embodiment of a province. Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? So, Rhiannon, as far as I knew, the spirit of Africa was Toto. (laughs) I'm sure Africans love that song. Yeah, oh yeah. And I'm amazed you remember it. (laughs) (laughs) How could I not? So, the word for spirit here will be genius. Yeah. um, And the idea that there's some kind of divine, numinous presence related to places and... It's hard for me, at least, not to relate it to the personification of places and provinces that Romans put on coins and in statuary form. So Mm. they often seem to imagine places as represented by especially women. So I think all of that might be linked together in some way. And to get a prophecy, a portent as such is, well, if it did happen, and I have no cause to doubt Curtius Rufus about it, then you take heed. Yeah, although as we'll go on to see, sometimes these things, especially if they're in dreams, which this one isn't, Mm. might suggest the opposite of what's coming. So it's not a done deal, but here it does seem to work, Mm. you know, because everything came true, as Pliny tells us. That's a spoiler, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he tells us fairly briefly. So, you know, he is going to, he has to go back to Rome and then he's going to come out to... Oh, all right. Everything came true. That's literally the next sentence here. Mm. Uh, Sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. Moreover, the story goes on to say that as he left the boat on his arrival at Carthage, the same figure met him on the shore. His uh, spirit of Africa again. It is at least certain that when he fell ill, he interpreted his future by the past and misfortune by his previous success and gave up all hope of recovery, although none of his people despaired of his life. So he clearly believed the prophecy and said, right, I'm now sick. This is a sign. This is it fulfilling itself. I now die in Africa. Pliny doesn't really say it, but I think there is a touch of if you believe the prophecy, then is it that self-fulfilling? You kind of lose the will to live, Mm. quite literally, because you've been told that you're going to die here. And if you've got that strong belief, that what we would call superstition, I guess, then does it mean that you're less likely to fight to survive? Yeah, yeah. Because he does make that point of none of his people despaired of his life. So they thought he wasn't that ill, but he died anyway. Mm. I think Pliny might be angling for Sura to analyse that in some way. We don't have the reply. Yeah, so, I know. So I know. I, as you're reading through this, I'm sort of thinking, is this like the kind of provocative question or passage I'd put up for students in a tutorial so they can take issue with it? <laughs> yeah, well, this is a philosophical exercise for Pliny, mm. clearly. 
So the next one uh, that he takes us through is what I've called a haunting in Athens. Uh, (laughs) Now consider whether the following story, which I will tell you as it has been told to me, is not quite as remarkable and even more terrifying. So... Than the previous story. Yeah. Sounds like Pliny wasn't a fan, but yeah. A lot of this strikes me as quite filmic. I know that meant nothing to Pliny. <laughs> People did it in horror writing as well. And we think of horrors coming, I guess, from the 18th century onwards, primarily in modern novels and then into films. Yeah. That idea that you build the tension. Like, ah, this, yes. one, this one's going to be even scarier. Yes. Now consider the following story. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, very dramatic. In Athens which is nice and vague, there was a large and spacious mansion with the bad reputation of being dangerous to its occupants. Now, you've got a a Latin term here bracketed. Yeah, for dangerous, the word is pestilence, which sort of has that, as you might be able to guess. Pestilence. plaguey. It's dangerous to your health. The bad reputation, by the way, is the word infamous, which we've talked about before. Infamy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we get infamy from it, but it can also indicate the status of slaves and actors and mm. so it's like low-born infamy uh, infamy infamy they've all got it infamy yes. yeah off we go it's the best roman joke so <laughs> so it's kind of a place you shouldn't go i guess it's keep away place because mm. you might get a disease from it but also it should exclude anyone of good repute well a very good term for this uh, at dead of night the clanking of iron and if you listened carefully the rattle of chains could be heard some way off at first and then close at hand Then there appeared the spectre of an old man, emaciated and filthy, with a long flowing beard and hair on end, wearing fetters on his legs and shaking the chains on his wrists. It's a great picture, isn't it? And not just a picture, but also you get the sounds and the sound coming closer. So, So how much props should I be giving to the translator for this, though? No, I th- I mean, it's there in the Latin. Pliny holds up, okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The fetters on the wrists, the chains and everything, that's all Marley was dead to begin with. I didn't realise that was such an old trope to go back to there. Yeah, I mean, well, look, we could get into the how much Roman literature was Dickens aware of question. Which well, is this, is, this is just old Dickens, this story here. <laughs> so you reckon Dickens went back in time? Well, we've already had the spirit of Africa, <laughs> a.k.a. the ghost of Christmas future. True, that's true. Uh, It might be a little more prosaic. Yes, it clearly works as terrifying, and so you can see why it might be built into later supernatural fiction. Mm. But there's also a suggestion, perhaps, that the guy who's coming back as a ghost was a prisoner who had died there. Or maybe was a victim, someone who had been trapped there. The chains are thematic for whatever reason. Mm. Uh, The wretched occupants would spend fearful nights awake in terror, lack of sleep, led to illness, and then death as their dread increased. For even during the day when the apparition had vanished, the memory of it was in their mind's eye, so that their terror remained after the cause of it had gone. See, I think that's really interesting because even if you believe that ghosts exist, there is a psychological effect of Mm. being haunted. So it might just be all in the mind, but even if it's not, you feel the terror after they've gone. And look, I think both of us can probably empathize with this. He's telling us the effects of lack of sleep. It's terrifying, <laughs> isn't it? it? I mean, he says these people die because of it. Yeah. It's a mixture of the terror and not being able to sleep. But it does really kind of affect your sense of reality in the end. You can't make good judgments if yeah. you don't sleep enough. Yeah, yeah. The podcast you recorded, Dodgy. Uh, <laughs> the house was therefore deserted, condemned to stand empty and wholly abandoned to the spectre. 
but it was advertised as being let or for sale, just in case someone was found who knew nothing about its evil reputation. <laughs> so, a real fixer-upper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the idea that you would let people go into this blindly and suffer. I, I, the I can see it. I can see it happening. Yeah. I mean, again, it's a film plot. Yeah. I mean, it's the film plot of, well, as we'll see, Poltergeist. Mm. I think that that's all backstory, and now we get to the real crux. Mm. This is what Pliny is interested, I think. The philosopher Athenodorus came to Athens and read the notice. His suspicions were aroused when he heard the low price. Always up for a bargain, good old (laughs) Athenodorus. Well, no, no, he's suspicious, so he realises there must be something (laughs) wrong here. And the whole story came out on inquiry. But he was nonetheless, in fact, all the more eager to rent the house. So selling point here that there is ghosts and spookiness involved. Because he's interested in, you know, finding out whether this could be true. Mm. So he's got a really inquiring mind. I think it's really important that he's a philosopher here. And we don't know exactly which Athenodorus this is. There were two Stoic philosophers who went by that name, or it could be someone different. I I like the idea it might be one of the Stoic philosophers, given we've already dealt with some Epicurean. When darkness fell, he gave orders that a couch was to be made up for him in the front part of the house and asked for his notebooks, pen and lamp. He sent all the servants to the inner rooms and concentrated his thoughts, eyes and hand on his writing so that his mind would be occupied and not conjure up the phantom he had heard about nor other imaginary fears. Back to those imaginary fears, aren't we? And also the idea that you might be infected by the stories that are already being told. So you might imagine it for yourself. Mm. Again, self-fulfilling. I've heard there are ghosts here. So when there's a noise, you know, there's a a door that blows shut or the wind blowing in the trees, I'm going to imagine that that's ghosts coming to get me. Yeah. But it's also when you're doing a scientific experiment, you remove anything else or you try to remove everything else that is going to influence the outcome. And that's what this is. I don't want anything from me saying that there's a ghost here. Yeah, or, it makes it very modern, doesn't yeah, it, in yeah. its uh, perspective? At first there was nothing but the general silence of the night. Then came the clanking of irons and dragging of chains. He did not look up nor stop writing, but steeled his mind to shut out the sounds. Then the noise grew louder, came nearer, was heard in the doorway, and then inside the room... He looked round, saw and recognised the ghost described to him. It stood and beckoned as if summoning him. Athenodorus, in his turn, signed it to wait a little, hold the phone, (laughs) and again bent over his notes and pen while it stood rattling its chains over his head as he wrote. It does make it more likely that this Athenodorus is intended to be one of those Stoic philosophers, either the mate of Cato or the mate of Augustus. So is this a classic Stoicism thing, to not react in an alarmist way, even if there's a ghost rattling chains, clearing his throat while he's trying to get your attention? It does seem, and it's certainly, I would say, a Roman interpretation of Stoicism in particular as being unaffected by what is around you, you know, that you will focus on the matter in hand. You won't feel fear, for one thing. You won't feel irrational fear. You can feel fear when it makes sense. But for Athenodorus here, fear is not going to help him. I think as well as Stoicism, the concentration on he's taking notes, he's bending over his notes and pen, this constant emphasis on the writing process, given mm. that Pliny is a scribe probably, but that he's writing in this letter and that's one of the kind of elite 
tasks to be this producer of text. Mm. All of that comes together as this is somebody who's dependable, whose word we should rely on because he's a writer. Yeah, okay, okay. He looked around again and saw it beckoning as before, so without further delay, he picked up his lamp and followed. So he hasn't gotten scared, he's actually listening to what he thinks this spirit is trying to tell him. It moved slowly, as if weighed down with chains, and when it turned off into the courtyard of the house, it suddenly vanished, leaving him alone. He then picked some plants and leaves and marked the spot. The following day, he approached the magistrates and advised them to give the orders for the place to be dug up. There he found bones, twisted round with chains, which were left bare and corroded by the fetters when time and the action of the soil had rotted away the body. The bones were collected and given a public funeral, and after the shades had been duly laid to rest, the house saw them no more. Thoughts? Ooh, well, if you, well, picking up on what we were talking about before, Athenodorus continues to be calm, doesn't he, in the face of this. So your instinct would be to run away. He mm. follows it. Yes. He's got enough presence of mind to mark the spot where the ghost disappears. And realises that where it disappears is significant. Yeah, and knows what he's going to find when he orders it to be dug up. He, yeah. he has already guessed that there are human remains there that haven't been properly given the rituals of death and therefore and this again seems like a very modern concept that they can't rest in peace because yeah. they haven't had those rituals and I mean you go to any tombstone it'll say dis manibus to the spirits of the dead that those spirits needed to be respected and placated and in very generalistic terms there are beliefs in for example the Oedipus myth you might think I'm stretching a bow here but <laughs> Oedipus as a child is exposed to die because of the omen that he's going to kill his father and marry his mother and he's got a limp and the reason he's got a limp is that his feet are pinned with a pin through them mm. so that he can't walk when he's dead. He can't come back and haunt. Yeah. But he's saved and the whole prophecy comes. So this idea that you must either placate or prevent the spirits from coming to curse you or haunt you in some way is, is buried deep there. But for the Romans, you know, there is this respect for the dead and he's bringing his own culture to this. So what he is supposing should happen to the dead, I think, is being overlaid if this was originally a Greek story. Mm. It might not have been. It might have been a Roman story made up about a Greek, just so you could shove Athenodorus in there. <laughs> By the way, his name means gift of Athens. Nice. Yeah. So the, the bones being dug up and then reburied properly, as I say, this is the plot of Poltergeist. Okay. Should they be paying money to Pliny <laughs> on the profits? Well, this is out of copyright, surely. <laughs> 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 that idea that in that case... And it's a film that certainly involved uh, Steven Spielberg, I believe, that they have built on top of a graveyard that Native Americans were buried in, mm -hmm. but they mm -hmm. haven't moved the bodies. So there is going to be implications there. Yes. You haven't seen Poltergeist, have you? <laughs> I haven't. No, no, I've, I've got no basis for this. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what's going on there. Okay. Uh, but I suspect in between Pliny and 1970s, I haven't looked up the date, I think it's 1970s horror movies, mm. there are other instances of this idea that you need to respect the place where the dead are and you need to give them the proper rituals or they won't rest. And also them just trying to communicate. This is a form of communication. Mm. A haunting is a misinterpretation of their actions. Yes. Yeah, Occasionally. It, yeah. it is, unless you are the person who can oh, them yeah, to be buried there, well, in yeah. which case they might want to punish you. Haunting for a reason, yes. <laughs> Part three, the next tale that he tells us, 
For these details, I rely on the evidence of others. So for this, he's talking about the previous two stories that we've just heard. But here is a story I can vouch for myself. One of my freedmen, a man of some education, which you need to know, so he's not, you know, so he prone to believed. flight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was sleeping in the same bed as his younger brother when he dreamed that he saw someone sitting on the bed and putting scissors to his hair, even cutting some of them off the top of his head. So this is cutting the hair of the freedman who's having the dream. When the day dawned, he found this place shorn and the hair lying on the floor. A short time elapsed, and then another similar occurrence confirmed the earlier one. A slave boy was sleeping with several others in the young slave's quarters. His story was that two men clad in white came in through the window, cut his hair as he lay on his bed, and departed the way they had came. Daylight revealed that his head had been shorn and that the hair was scattered about. So at this point, I thought, oh, this is meant to be a prophecy that this boy will be set free, right? Enslaved people, their hair grows longer, especially right. boys, and then they have it cut into what you think of as the male Roman haircut oh. when they are set free. Traditionally, I don't know whether this happened in every case. So that's what it looks like to me. It's not the way Pliny interprets it. Yeah. See, I took this as a Roman prank. Okay, I think it probably is that, but let's talk about that at the end. Okay, all right, okay. (laughs) Nothing remarkable followed, except perhaps the fact that I was not brought to trial, as I should have been if Domitian, under who this had happened, had lived longer. Context? So Domitian, much hated by Pliny and others, drew up lists of senators to have them executed. Right, this is one of the reasons he's hated. Yeah. And Pliny says... That he's on one of these lists. Oh, he goes okay. on to say that. So he sees this as an indication that he is in danger but to be spared. Right. Uh, for among the papers in his desk was found information laid against me by Carus, from which, in view of the custom for accused persons to let their hair grow long, one may interpret the cutting of my slave's hair as a sign that the danger threatening me was averted. You see, I think Pliny just makes this all about himself. As I say, it looks to me much more like meant to be an omen that this slave will be set free. The way Pliny interprets it is there was an informer against me because Domitian, like Tiberius and other emperors, this had informers. Carus, yes. yeah. yeah. You know, there's this tradition if you're put on trial, yeah. whether there'd have been a trial with Domitian is another matter, yeah. that you grow your hair until the prosecution has happened and you've been found not guilty. Really? And don't wash properly. Yeah, you you know, your toga gets dirty as a sign that you're kind of ground down by this process. You're so distracted by the trial and you're so maybe humiliated that you're not taking care of yourself. All right. So the long hair on the enslaved person indicates to Pliny the situation he would have been in if he had been accused, but it didn't happen because the hair was cut off. It's very convoluted. See, I I see this again as just a prank. Somebody's just sneaking in, cutting hair, thinking it's hilarious. Also, Domitian famously has one written work, which we don't sadly have, called Care of the Hair. So I thought maybe it's a a preoccupation and this is a warning about Domitian. Uh, I guess he could be referring to that. In which case, portent. Yeah, I guess so. It's very, very straight. I'm sort of getting the feeling that that oldie question, if we could recover one lost work from antiquity for you, it might be the care of the, the hair. The care of the hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't want the lost books of Tacitus at all. <laughs> this is what I want. <laughs> Are you looking for advice or just some insight into Domitian's psyche? I want the autobiography of Septimius Severus, please. Oh, okay. That'd be good. Okay. Anyway, tangent. Uh 
So please apply your learned mind to this question. It deserves your long and careful consideration, but I too am surely not undeserving as a recipient of your informed opinion. You may argue both sides of the case, as you always do, but lay your emphasis to one side or the other, and do not leave me in suspense and uncertainty. My reason for asking your opinion was to put an end to my doubts. So, in my opinion, this entire A Haunting in Three Parts from Pliny was all about part three, and that the rest of it was backstory. Okay, so that he can make it apply to himself, or at least ask for Licinius Sura's... Do you think this was a genuine yeah. warning that I was receiving from the other realms? Okay, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it is all building up to this one. Mm. I think that the Athenodorus story is the longest by far. So the kind of centerpiece of the letter, maybe it's keeping him on track so that he gets him to the one that applies to me. (laughs) I had another thought on this, which is that Pliny is using this story, which I agree with you. I think if it happened, it's his freedman and enslaved person playing a trick on him. Yeah. And maybe it's the enslaved person asking for his freedom, you know, or saying, oh, look, there's a portent about this. That's, Why don't you set me that's free? That's right. Clearly, clearly yeah. I should be gone. Notice that the only two things he considers all the way along are it's real, there is a ghost, or it's all in my mind. Or how does this apply to me? Yeah. Yeah, the portent isn't about my slave. It's about me, the owner, the master. But what it gives Pliny the opportunity to draw attention to is I was in danger under Domitian. Mm. Clearly, I was seen as dangerous, not complicit enough. And who wants to be seen as complicit after Domitian's gone? Everyone's scrabbling around trying to say, oh, you know, I wasn't really going along with it. I was trying to work from within or, you know, I I wasn't one of his mates, honest. And that being in danger is kind of a mark of pride afterwards. Mm. It's kind of the perfect balancing act, isn't it? Not being so dangerous that you've already been killed off by Domitian but not being so much part of the in-group that you might be despised afterwards. He's really got to prove that he earned the rank of trust uh, in a non-Domitianic universe, I guess. Yeah, and it's interesting just how important these stories are and the concepts that this letter presents to modern haunting-slash-horror kind of spooky story tropes. Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to say that because they seem so similar to what you might see on a screen today or in a horror novel, that these things just are and always scary to people. And mm. I guess there's a certain amount of truth to that. But I suspect there is a literary history of this. Again, I think of the inception of modern horror as being with you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and those novels of the 18th, 19th centuries. They'd have had classical education. Mary Shelley, even though she's a woman, she knows her classics. Mm. So I suspect that they are drawing on some of these narratives because, who knows, they might have read Pliny himself. That was Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, head of the Classics and Ancient History program at La Trobe University, and you have been listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. You can find the Emperors of Rome on Facebook and you can follow us on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, I will be joined by Rhiannon as we look at Cicero's greatest victory. Until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening.